It's Friday, September 22nd, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. For more than a century, the energy industry in Pennsylvania has been more or less synonymous with fossil fuels. But technological advances and an evolving economic landscape mean that's about to change. The uh, oil minister of Saudi Arabia a few decades ago said (laughs) the Stone Age did not end because humans ran out of stones. We had better replacements. With energy, we have better replacements now. And we're seeing that transition. It's been a long time coming, but a lot of the pieces are finally falling into place to make solar energy economically viable. All that's missing is a coherent policy framework and a little nudge to get things moving. What kind of long-term drivers do we need to have in terms of policy that can spark, not only spark and inspire the market, but keep it going? A coalition of stakeholders convened by the Department of Environmental Protection is exploring what it'll take to get the Commonwealth's solar industry off the ground. Today we hear from three members of the Pennsylvania Solar Future Stakeholders Group. That's coming up on this week's show. First, though, a quick update on the still unresolved state budget process. David Hess is the former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and runs the Pennsylvania Environment Daily blog and newsletter. Mr. Secretary, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Another wild week in Harrisburg, sounds like. Well, you know, there's it, it's not as exciting as Game of Thrones, but it has its moments. <laughs> It's Wednesday afternoon as we're speaking, and we've just had uh, another development come out of the state Senate. Could you explain what's uh, what's happened today? Yeah, the Senate uh, today overwhelmingly rejected the House Republican budget plan, 43 to 7, in in very much a bipartisan vote. And what they hope happens in the Senate is that this sets up a conference committee. But there's no agreement yet with the House to set up a conference committee where three members from the House and three members from the Senate sit down and, and work, out, work out a deal. So that's at least another shoe that has to drop to see whether the House will go along with forming a, a conference committee. But the bottom line is they, they understand they, they need to get this, this resolved. They view, at least the Senate views, a conference committee as a, a better way to, to do this. When you look at the range of possibilities, things that could have happened this week, is it fair to say this is sort of a bad news, less bad news kind of situation? Bad news being that this process continues to drag on and the outlook is still you know, not great, but that what happened today was one of the less bad possibilities? Well, it certainly is a less bad option. I mean, what, what the Senate could have done is just concurred with the House changes and sent that to the governor, but of course the governor expressed a lot of concerns about the House Republican package, but that that didn't happen. In spite of the fact that today Standard & Poor's downgraded the state's credit rating because this whole budget thing hasn't been, uh, been resolved. So people are hoping that, you know, this bad news on the credit rating and, you know, heading toward what Governor Wolf this week said was an October 1 deadline that he could keep things going without delaying more payments or cutting additional funding uh, at least to October 1st to leave some room for a, a budget settlement. They're hoping the pressure from those things, you know, maneuvers the House Republicans into doing something a lot more serious on, on finding revenue to balance a $2.2 billion deficit. 
So walk me through the mechanics of the conference committee then. Who serves on this committee? How do we expect them to to approach this problem? Well, assuming, you know, the House goes along with this arrangement, there's still the bottom line is tough negotiations that have to happen, you know, between the Senate and the House. Remember, the Senate passed budget, you know, had had still a lot of things in that a lot of environmental groups, including Pennsylvania Environmental Council, didn't didn't like. Cuts to funding. They had uh, authorized a third-party permit review. They got rid of some environmental standards. I mean, there's a bunch of things in there that that uh, groups did not like. You know, and in the case of the House Republican budget, obviously the the huge raid on special environmental funds over 317 million dollars would be would be taken to balance the budget in the House Republican plan. You know, it's it's those two sides that the uh, conferees are going to have to try to to work out how they come up with a credible plan to fill the state's deficit. I mean, either way you look at it, if you look at it in current today's terms, literally, you know, the House Republican budget was sort of a Category Five hurricane with huge destructive potential. You know, the Senate budget was still on that scale, but maybe a house, a hurricane category three budget. So, you know, we're, we're likely to get a combination of both those things. But again, I think we're headed down a path where it may be less damaging to environmental programs than the House Republican budget, but it's still going to cause a lot of damage. So in the scenario where the House does call for conference committee and we proceed down that path, how likely is it that we're going to end up with something that will include a lot of the elements of both House and Senate plans uh, that Pennsylvania Environmental Council and a number of other organizations, as you mentioned, do not like? Is it are we looking at a, a worst of both worlds kind of a kind of possibility? Well, I I think the likelihood is you're going to see some bad things in in the compromise. You're still going to see cuts in agency. Funding, I think you're still going to see a number of things that came out of the Senate package, like the special committee that was set up to approve the uh, methane controls on oil gas operations, you know, deemed approved permit provisions for oil and gas if they're not reviewed in a certain number of days. And again, this notion of a third party permit review program where licensed engineers or landscape architects get to uh, review their own permits, perhaps because there are no conflict of interest provisions in what the Senate passed. I mean, all these, you know, things could be in, in the final product. So again, I think we're going down a path where, you know, there isn't anything but bad news or worse news uh, in whatever product is is coming out, and I think, you know, people have to recognize that if they want a lot of these programs to continue, they're going to have to stick up for them in one way or another. And the governor has said he wants this or expects this to be resolved by early October. Is that realistic? You know, Senator Corman, the Senate Republican Majority Leader, said today in a press conference, he said he'd like to do it tomorrow, but it is going to take a lot of conversation. I mean, October one is not that far away. I mean, today's, as we're talking, it's the 20th of September. So, you know, it's certainly possible they can do it, 
but it's it's going to have to be a real bipartisan lift by everybody to do that. And so far, the House Republicans in particular seem reluctant to go that bipartisan route. I mean, the, the budget they passed was passed only with Republican votes last week. So, you know, we'll have to see where all this, how all this turns out. David Huss, our man in Harrisburg, former DEP secretary, runs the EPA Environment Daily blog. Thanks again for your time, sir. Sure. Anytime. Thanks. Pennsylvania just kicked off a two-year planning process for transitioning to an energy portfolio with at least 10% solar-generated power. And that's only the beginning, as I found out recently when I spoke with three members of the team that's leading the effort. Here's our conversation. Members of the Pennsylvania Solar Future Stakeholders Group joining us today include, starting my left, Stacey Richards, Director of the Energy Resource Center with the CETA Council of Governments in Central Pennsylvania. Welcome, Stacey. Thank you. Vera Cole is President of the Mid-Atlantic Renewable Energy Association. Hi, Vera. Hi, Josh. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for coming. And Roger Clark is with Reinvestment Fund. Roger, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, Josh. Thank you. A lot of brain power in this room today. I'm going to try and make an effective use of your time, but quickly make the case for why solar energy is important for Pennsylvania. Obviously, Pennsylvania is a big energy producer, big energy exporter. Where does solar fit into that picture? That's a great question. I'd start by saying that natural gas, coal, and nuclear are not the energy sources of the future uh, in Pennsylvania or elsewhere. They all pose serious environmental risk and are not renewable, meaning they're going to run out. So innovation and investment in solar and energy efficiency and other renewable energy sources are what's going to drive the future economy. And so solar is going to be key to that. With no emissions, relying only on free and abundant energy from the sun, Pennsylvania has the opportunity to be an early winner in this transition. That's why we need to jump on it now, and that's why this initiative is so very important to Pennsylvania's future. I think the uh, the population loves solar. Yeah. Uh, the market wants solar. It's been exploding in the last few years as solar prices have been coming down. So the, the question isn't so much which form of energy should government pick, but what are the rules and regulations and policies that give these different competing forms an even playing field so they can compete with each other and let the marketplace decide? And solar is going to be the winner in that. Especially when those playing fields um, include environmental and health considerations. Exactly. Environmental health considerations, economic considerations, resiliency is an, is an issue, I understand. Right. Before we get into the details Vera, quickly, what is the PA Solar Futures Initiative? What is the stakeholders group? What are you working on? It's a statewide planning project that's funded by a $550,000 award, award from the um, United States Department of Energy's SunShot program. It's led by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection uh, in partnership with Penn Future and scenario modeling by Vermont Energy Investment Corporation. The goal of this project is to come up with a shared vision for the most effective ways Pennsylvania can reach the objective of 10% of in-state electricity sales generated by in-state solar energy by 2030. So that's our goal in a nutshell. 
this 10% is the initial objective, like we talked about. We may reconsider that number as we move forward. We're organized. Uh, we have it's a basically a stakeholder engagement process. We have stakeholders from all different sectors, all across the state involved. We have uh, regular meetings. There's online webinars, modeling. There's plenty of opportunity for stakeholder engagement. And there's we're organized into three working groups: a regulatory and rate making group, an operations and interconnection group, and a market and business models group. So you have been tasked specifically with developing long-term policy to drive uh, the increase in, in solar in Pennsylvania to the 10% mark. Why is that number important? What happens when we hit 10%? This is Stacy responding. It does this. Establishing that 10% solar generation goal provides the long-term signal to the marketplace that solar is real in Pennsylvania. And it does, as far as I'm concerned, three things. It establishes the amount of development to occur in solar technology to meet this increased demand for solar, as Roger pointed out. This drives the demand for manufacturing of the solar components. And then this, in turn, creates the potential for economic development in locations that could supply these companies. And I think the 10% is not a ceiling, it's a floor. We have parts of the world today that are already way above 10% solar. We're learning how solar integrates into the electric grid, and the result is 10%'s not a problem. It can be done easily. I think the other part of it is with an aspirational goal, how far do you want to stretch yourself? Right now, our legislation called the Alternative Energy Portfolio Standards Act requires one half of 1% of our electricity be generated by solar by 2021. So 10% is a much, It doesn't much sound larger. like a lot. It's no. not a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I would personally say that 10% isn't the ceiling either, but it's a, a, a powerful statement that says this is the direction we see and let's figure out how to make it happen. So when we're at that point, hopefully the market just takes over. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would also believe that that's it's it's okay for now, but I think it's definitely too low. And hopefully though, once we get this ball really really rolling, that they it's we're not going to stop at 10%. There's no reason to think that. So in terms of how how we get to that benchmark, other states have taken some steps in this direction already. Are you guys looking at what other states, uh, neighboring states maybe have done uh, along similar lines? Yes, in a number of ways. I think we all have because they serve as such great examples and Throughout what's called the Green Belt, which is pretty much the Midwest and New England states, mid-Atlantic states that Vera represents, you really have close proximity to the market, and you have some comparisons and non-comparisons among the states. I think one of the most instructive states for me to look at in terms of the marketplace is Ohio for a couple of reasons. One is it has almost the same extractable resources and history of that extraction as Pennsylvania. Um, it has, it had had, and now has again, a strong manufacturing base with some skilled workforce. It has a manufacturing legacy feeding the um, car industry, similar to Pennsylvania's manufacturing industry, feeding the infrastructure in general. And as importantly, it's been on a track in terms of policy and the development of energy efficiency and renewable energy deployment as well as feeding the market, as Pennsylvania has. Um, It established, Roger talked about the alternative energy portfolio standard, and also Ohio established that 
interestingly, it repealed that, or it didn't repeal it, but it put it uh, on hold. It froze it in 2014. And that had a massive impact on a, a very important comeback for their manufacturing base, which was renewable energy, both wind and solar. In fact, Ohio ranked sixth in terms of the numbers of companies that were making solar products, which was a huge economic engine for them for several years. Now the market has started to shift because that long-term policy goal disappeared for a short amount of time. And the market likes certainty. And so that's part of the PA, finding PA solar, is what kind of long-term drivers do we need to have in terms of policy that can spark, not only spark and inspire the market, but keep it going. What was Ohio's goal? Ohio's goal was similar to Pennsylvania's. It was late to the game in terms of its alternative energy portfolio standard. We established ours in, I think, 2004, and they established theirs in 2008. But they were very similar goals. Roger talked about the alternative energy portfolio standard in Pennsylvania establishing a 15%, was that 12%, 10%? 18%. 18% by 2021. Thank you. With only 0.5% of that required to come from solar. And I'm sure we'll get into the discussion of how that has played out in Pennsylvania, but it set the base for Ohio, and Ohio paid attention to its supply chain. I think it's something that here in Pennsylvania, we don't include in the discussion of the value of solar. There's so many values to it, but as an economic engine, uh, I think we, we need to paint the picture for that. So Ohio had a very similar platform as Pennsylvania, but they did diverge a little bit, although they had similar results. We reached our 18%, and our market is broader uh, in terms of the utilities being able to purchase solar. They can purchase it from many states. In Ohio, for several years, you needed to have 50% of the solar generation be from in-state. They have since changed that, and they now have a devaluation of what's called solar renewable energy credits, which I'll give up my airtime to allow others to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the uh, downside of this topic. You get very wonky very quickly with with acronyms. I'm just going to nod politely as if I understand everything you're saying. Very good, very good. One of the the big issues that Stacy referred to is from whence can you get your your resource, your solar right. development, and have it count towards your state goal. In Pennsylvania, with that AEPS legislation, the decision was made to have solar anywhere within the PJM footprint. That's our power grid that right. goes from North Carolina out to Illinois and from Pennsylvania in the mid-Atlantic. So that helps, but in a way, it's having Pennsylvania ratepayers subsidize solar development in North Carolina or Illinois or Maryland or anywhere within PJM. And I think the original intent was to have the legislation be a spur to 
encourage development within Pennsylvania. So ratepayer dollars go to Pennsylvania projects. There's legislation now that's working its way through the General Assembly to do that, to limit the solar to Pennsylvania projects, which I think is a good step that we should do. Otherwise, that one half of 1% gets even smaller in terms of how much of it comes from Pennsylvania. Yeah, it kind of underscores the the complexity of trying to do state policy that affects a grid system that mm-hmm. it doesn't see state boundaries so much. Electricity flows freely across the, through the whole region, and balancing is live and going on all the time across the whole region. And how do you make policy that's sound within the state and that works well with your neighbors at the same time? Yeah, L- let me give a, an example for for listeners to think about because the electric grid is very complex. Mm-hmm. I like to think of it as a big bathtub. And the electric generation suppliers are are dumping water into the bathtub. And all of us consumers, the residential and commercial and industrial, we're all aligned around the bathtub with our straws sucking water out. The grid's job is to keep that balance going, how much electricity gets dumped in, how much gets withdrawn. And you can't say, I'm getting electrons from that particular project because electrons go where they will, wherever the, the load is. But as long as you keep the water level level and do the accounting, then you're tracking where it's happening. So it has, has an impact. Often one of the maybe the most tricky part about getting solar projects off the ground is the financing. Right. Other technologies maybe have an easier time getting the investment they need. How should solar projects be financed and what role can the state play in the form of tax incentives or or other mechanisms in making that a little bit easier? Sure. Well, the problem most renewable energy has is that the cost is primarily the capital cost of the equipment. But the good side is the fuel is free. We don't pay for the sunshine. We don't pay for the wind for wind energy. We don't pay for the tides with with tidal power and so on. But you're front-loading all of those costs, and and so that makes the financing deal a little more important. With with a gas-fired power plant, most of the cost actually comes as you're using that plant with the fuel price the fuel costs you're paying for. The equipment's a lot cheaper. Uh, but with solar, it's all front-loaded. So financing's the issue. It's, it's really a financing question. Governments have done a number of things to sort of even that out. One, the federal government has some serious tax incentives. They were recently extended a few years ago. The investment tax credit, for example, uh, provides 30% of the cost of your solar system as a tax credit. Uh, There's accelerated depreciation and MACRs, it's called, and bonus depreciation, which helps as well if you can take advantage of those credits. So both of those help in in reducing the cost to the consumer. With states, some states have exempted solar equipment from a state sales tax. We have not in Pennsylvania. Others have dealt with issues like the problem of your appraisal of your property going up if you have solar on your your roof and what does that mean in terms of your tax obligations and so on. So there are multiple levers for all of that. Beyond that, the question then is, how do I pay for it? Whatever that bottom line is, how do I pay for that? And the key really is long-term financing. That's going to reduce your monthly payment, your principal and interest payment, more effectively than even low interest rates. I'd rather have 20-year money at 6% than 5-year money at 0% because with the 20-year money, my monthly payment will be lower. 
And there are a variety of mechanisms to provide that financing. When, when you're thinking about financing models, are you thinking with industry in mind, consumer level? Like if I just want to put some panels on my roof, are you thinking about ways to make that easier for me as somebody who doesn't understand the technology, doesn't understand the regulations, maybe daunted by, by those barriers to yep. entry? Well, there are multiple business models for owning solar. The simplest is the homeowner or the business decides, I want solar. I'm going to get some money to pay for it. I'm going to own it from the beginning. What we've seen in the last few years is a totally different model. Solar City and other groups said that own and pay for uh, the solar installation, and then you have a long-term contract with them, 15, 20 years, uh, where you're paying them for the electricity that their system on your roof is providing. That's the second model, and that's very popular with consumers because there's no upfront capital for that or very little. There's another model that's really taking, you know, growing around the country, and that's community solar, where instead of having solar on your own roof, you have it as part of a larger installation somewhere. You know, a lot of consumers, residential consumers, don't own their own homes. They're, they're tenants. A lot of them have poor solar access. There's big trees, the roof isn't oriented properly, or, or the pitch of the roof isn't quite optimum and so on. A lot of folks are saying, I may be moving in a few years, and I don't want to risk the person who loves my house loves solar as much, and so I may not get the benefit of that uh, financially. So the community solar model, instead of having the solar on your own roof, has a large installation, which can generally be done on a lower cost per watt than three or five kW installations on, on difficult roofs. But the subscribers to that system act as if they have that solar on their own own roof. So they benefit from net metering, which is a regulatory concept where it's like spinning your meter backwards. When your solar is producing more power than your home or business is using, like on a Sunday for a business, you put that electricity back into the grid right. and almost spin your meter backwards. And then you get it back at full retail rates when you when you need it. You can do that with community solar as well. So customers benefit from that. So that's a third model, business model. We cannot do that yet in Pennsylvania for most of our investor-owned utilities. The rural electric co-ops can do it. Municipal utilities can do it because they're not subject to the Public Utility Commission rules on net metering. We're doing it at a project down at the Philadelphia Navy Yard because that's its own microgrid and PIDC, which manages the Navy Yard, will be doing that virtual net metering with customers that are signing up for the solar we're putting down there. So it's a, a model that's that's really gaining traction. I think it's very important to pursue. Roger, I would add to that list mm -hmm. um, PACE, Property Assessed Clean Energy Financing, yep. which uh, I think is so promising. I'm really excited about what that could mean. In those cases, uh, local municipalities are empowered to make loans, basically, to local businesses or homeowners, and that loan is paid back in the form of a rider on their uh, tax payment. So it's low risk. If the home is sold or the business is sold, the building is sold, then the new owner just, just continues paying on the, uh, the tax rider that's there for the solar energy until it's paid off. And that has a lot of benefits. These are low-risk loans. It's easy to manage. It's local. And the, the handoffs are easy. And those are really win-win if we can figure it out. It's legislatively a little bit of a challenge. Right now, we're trying to figure out commercial in Pennsylvania 
Pennsylvania, and residential has its own issues. It has to do with mortgage contingencies and those kind of things. But hopefully we can clear the way on that. And that's nice because it's uh, it's handled through the local tax system, but it doesn't involve other taxpayers. Mm-hmm. So if you put a system on your building or your house, then uh, only you pay the tax for that and fully fund it. So just with some with some working capital and the right legislation, those are, I think, very promising approach to financing. What do you think, Roger? Yep. So, yep. It's a model that we've already used for other purposes. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're in a development and they extend the sewer lines, they'll put that cost of that extension on your tax bill, your property tax bill, and recover that over a long period of time. So this is simply saying, well, hold it. Energy efficiency, you know, clean energy, that's a public good. Let's use that same mechanism to fund benefits that efficiency and renewables would provide. All of these are part of a puzzle to put together. I do a lot of work with local governments and communities. Particularly, I work with tax-exempt organizations. They don't have tax liability, so they can't benefit from either the federal or state tax incentives. So what do they do? Well, if PACE is in place, they might go there, but most local governments don't like to have loans on the books. So what had worked in the past um, but is not working right now are those solar renewable energy credits, or SRECs, as they're called. Back in 2009, they were worth $490 per megawatt of electricity generated from solar. That could equate to $49,000 if you've put in a capacity solar system of about 15 kilowatts. That can largely finance the solar project. And that's available to local governments and residents and the commercial. So to me, it is a very egalitarian. Mm -hmm. But the market fell apart a couple of years ago. And one of the things is what Roger had talked about and Vera had talked about, which is solar can be procured by the electric utilities from other states. And so therefore, when our surrounding states closed their markets, then It allowed the utilities to purchase from them, but not from us. And we saw a significant devaluation of those solar renewable energy credits. In fact, I did a project in Lycoming Township, and we started the project in 2009. We pursued grants to do it, which come with their own cost. You haven't heard us talking about grants very much. And by the time the solar array, rooftop solar array, switch was flipped, the value of those SRECs had plummeted to $15 in just a couple of years. So that just, that almost wiped out that capital that could have been available to tax-exempt organizations. So there are a number of things clearly that can be done that are policy. They're not a massive amount of public infrastructure grants. They are locally driven primarily, and they can all work. What is the the willingness at the local level, municipal, county governments, and and whoever else you're working with, Stacey, does approaching it at that level make it easier in some ways? Do people want to take this on? As Roger said, there is massive interest. There is a huge demand for solar. The phone calls I get almost always start with, I'd like to invest in a solar array what grants are out there for me to help me with my costs? 
And I usually need to walk them back and find another way to be able to finance their projects. What the demand is there, but I think one of the things that is missing is that technology transfer of what it takes financially and from a contractor point of view, the whole package, the larger companies, the larger local governments, the universities, the hospitals, have the in-house capacity to gain that knowledge. But particularly in rural areas where people aren't rubbing elbows as much as they are in urban areas, you see far less of that knowledge. So it's not sexy anymore to fund education and knowledge transfer, but I think it's one of the most important Mm -hmm. things we can do. And I think that one of the goals of the Pennsylvania Solar Futures Project is to identify those barriers of any type. Are they policy barriers? Are they financial barriers? Are they market barriers? Do customers just not know where to turn? And are there educational problems? Identify all of those so this can be a marketplace that operates smoothly. I would definitely agree with that. I think that there are a lot of more solutions available than we're taking advantage of right now. And I think I would say there's two major dimensions of that. One of them is a lack of education. It's, a, it's complex. And these are things that people don't deal with on an everyday basis. If you're running a hospital or, an, or another kind of business or nonprofit, this, you know, installing a solar system is something you're going to probably only do once. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it, and there's a lot of learning that needs to be done about the financing, about the technology, about what it means ongoing. But but once it's learned, it's there and it's in place and it's, it's, you know, it's pretty much no problem after that. So I would say that understanding the technology and understanding the process is a big piece of it. But also there's uncertainty. I think there's a lot of uncertainty. There's uncertainty about regulations. People are concerned about investing now when they think there's uncertainty about net metering and the future of net metering. When there's uncertainty about new products in the pipeline. You know, if I wait a few years, can I do my roof with solar panels? I mean, you know, these are the kind of questions. So I think there's uncertainty about acting now. And and then there's also uncertainty about pricing. You know, our price is going to get lower. We've seen prices drop. If I wait longer, they're going to get lower. And at the same time, there's not a sense of urgency. You know, our electricity bills are not most people's biggest problem. And unless we can add to this picture and to this discussion, the urgency comes from the environmental issues, as far as I'm concerned. It comes from the environmental issues, and then it's followed by the economic opportunity and the economic future and jobs in this state. And so I think I'm hoping that with this initiative, we can help develop that, flesh out that picture more fully for people who may be in businesses who may be inclined to do a voluntary procurement of solar, you know, without any kind of mandate, without any kind of, but, but be in a position to say, this makes sense for my home, this makes sense for my family, this makes sense for my, for my pocketbook, this makes sense, certainly makes sense for the environment, and that's my driver for doing it. Climate change, as Vera said, is a very important driver for moving to a clean energy economy. Fortunately, we have every resource in Pennsylvania from not only the fossil fuel-based, which we've been relying on, but also the proximity to markets for our location, our manufacturing legacy, our workforce, our demand from the public for all of this. If not for climate change, this would happen, but it wouldn't happen as quickly. I think it would stay on the horizon. It's very important for our culture to begin to move from a drain America first point of view to a really enable us to take the next step away from a combustion engine or away from coal and extracted fossil fuel and head to something much cleaner, much healthier, and, and can drive our economy for a long time to come. 
I certainly agree with that, that the urgency stems from climate change, the urgency to act now, the urgency for this initiative now. And the implications of climate change in Pennsylvania are already quite clear. Our average temperature has already gone up. Heavy rainstorms are more frequent. The Delaware River is rising. And as these changes progress, these trends are going to continue at an accelerated rate. Because of when and how the warming and wetting changes are occurring, Pennsylvania is expected to experience intensified flooding and drought. Um, and if these current trends continue, in about 30 years, the average temperature in Pennsylvania is going to be five or six degrees higher than it was in the year 2000. Can we imagine every day being five or six degrees warmer? What does that do to farmers, animals, plants, disease-carrying insects, human health, and on top of that, flooding and drought? This future is avoidable with the transition to clean energy economy and the use of energy source, or clean energy sources. I think the choice is clear, and we're at a point now where action is very important. Do you think Pennsylvania's on the right track? We could be. We could be. And I want to say the environmental issues are not simply climate change, as critical and central as that is. But many of our environmental problems are the consequence of how we mine and use and, and share energy, from acid rain to particulates to even now earthquakes, earthquakes from our use of, of fossil fuels. And on top of that, fossil fuels by their very nature are finite. They are not unlimited. We, we keep coming up with new technologies to develop more, and we're seeing that very much in Pennsylvania with Marcel Shale. But these new technologies have added risks and added costs and, and added problems to them. The uh, oil minister of Saudi Arabia a few decades ago said <laughs> the Stone Age did not end because humans ran out of stones. We had better replacements. With energy, we have better replacements now, and we're seeing that transition to cleaner energy, to solar and renewables happening, and it's an exciting time to be around. Well, thank you so much for bringing your expertise today. Stacy Richards with the ACETA Council of Governments, Central PA, thank you very much. Vera Cole of the Mid-Atlantic Renewable Energy Association and Roger Clark with Reinvestment Fund, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Thank Charles. you. Thank you. You'll find more on the Pennsylvania Solar Future Initiative on the DEP website. We will post the link at PECPA.org, our website. We'll also link you back to our recent conversation with Nick Klein of the Coalition for Green Capital, which has been publishing research on the investment potential of renewables and energy efficiency technologies in Pennsylvania. Nice companion piece to this week's show. You can find the complete back catalog of Pennsylvania Legacies on the website. Once again, the address is PECPA.org, PECPA.org. While you're there, have a look at the blog, our events listing, information about our programs in all corners of the state, touching upon energy and climate matters, on watersheds, on trails and recreation, on policy and what's happening in state government. We are covering it all. You'll find out about everything PEC's doing at PECPA.org, as well as on our social media channels. We're on Twitter at PECPA. Look for us on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to Pennsylvania Legacies. It's free in Apple Podcasts, in Google Play, in Stitcher, SoundCloud, and more. Check us out and please leave a rating and review. Hope you'll join us for another edition of Pennsylvania Legacies next week. We post new episodes every Friday. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.